This morning we're going to start a new series, and we're going to go through a book. We're going to go through the book of First uh, John, and uh, it's going to be a 12, 13-week series. In other words, we're going to preach it till Christmas, <laughs> uh, but it's going to be good. We're going to look at each of the passages going through the book of First John, and uh, I want to tell you not to miss it. And the reason why I want to say not to miss it, because these books, they just build on each other. I mean, every single week, they, every passage just builds on each other and gives you an amazing um, perspective of God amazing perspective of his word, and an amazing perspective of the gospel. And the reason why I picked the book of 1 John is because I will tell you that uh, it displays the gospel in its power. In fact, it tells you what the gospel does to you. And I'm like, oh boy, we got we to gotta hit this book because we got to see what this gospel does to us. So when we're looking at the book of 1 John, you might ask, well, what's the book of 1 John about? Well, John doesn't want to confuse anybody. In fact, when John writes a book, um, he just will come right out and tell you, this is why I wrote the book. He wrote the book of John. He wrote the book of 1 John. He wrote the book of 2 John, 3 John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. And when he wrote the book of John, uh, right at the end of the book, he just told you exactly what the book was about. John 20 says what? I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the reason why I wrote the book, so that you will believe. And then you get the center of the book, or not the center, but John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can read through the pages of John, and we can have the perspective of why he wrote the book, and we completely understand the entire book. And the motive of the writer, which is John, inspired by God, written So we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As the parables are spoken, as the stories are spoken, as the death, burial, and resurrection is spoken in John, that's why it's written. Why do you write the book of 1 John? Well, I guess at the end of the book he tells you. He says on John 5, I write this, says those words, I write this so that you know you believe. Book of John, I write this so you will believe And I'm going to write another book, and the reason why I'm going to write this book is I am writing this so that you know you believe, so you know you have eternal life. So that's what the book of 1 John is about. So when we open it up, we're looking at 12 weeks, we're looking at 13 weeks, we're going to get some major statements that will make us excited. The reason why they'll make us excited is because we'll understand the gospel more when they're spoken. By First John, and it also it might make us go, "Oh my goodness, I got to get back on track," because I think a little different. In fact, I got to um, take my gospel and get it completely right, because some of us can get our gospel wrong. Get our gospel right, because the gospel is supposed to do something to me, and it's not doing this. I maybe need to shift a little gears a little bit and make sure that I say this is what the gospel is supposed to do to me. So it would actually bring us into alignment of what the gospel does. And so it should encourage you, it should make you happy, it should make you excited, but it also should go, oh my goodness, that gospel does this? Well, this is what I'm going to take from it then. So as we look through the John, I want everybody to walk, the book of First John, I want everybody to walk out the door excited because of the information that comes out of the power of that gospel. And I want you to think about what is written when you leave as well. So John's going to open up his book, and I'll tell you that every apostle, when they open up his book, do you know what they do? They, they do two things. They give the gospel in a, a different way. I mean, Paul does it. 
He gives the gospel in a different way. It's really fast because they're all just introductions of the book. Give the gospel in kind of a different way, and then they kind of line out the whole book, even in the process of even the first chapter. It's just absolutely amazing. So we want to read the first chapter, and I will tell you the first four verses. I'll tell you that I'm going to preach on the same four verses next week too because there's so much meat in these first four verses. But he's going to send us a direction right through the entire book through these first four verses. So let's read it, and then let's, um, let's uh, go into it. First John 1, 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at in our hands and touched, which we have proclaimed concerning the word of life, the life appeared. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to have eternal life, which with the Father and he appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. When you look at that passage, he is saying that all believers, believers have a joy that they derive from the gospel. Number one, believers find a deep-seated joy in the gospel. That's what believers do. They find a deep seated joy in the gospel. Been gone for a month. I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, and uh, some of you guys didn't know I was gone, and um, some of you guys <laughs> were glad I was gone, and other people knew I was gone. So there's three different clientels that are out there. Um, but there's, what are you doing? And then I said, oh, I went hiking. And, uh, and when I talk to people in the foyer, people say, well, you know, tell us about it. <laughs> and, and I can't tell anybody about it in the foyer because I'm just shaking hands. Hey, it was really good. And they want to know how it was like, what it was like, and all those kind of things. So I just want to take a break from the passage, take a break from the Word, and I just want to talk a little bit about hiking. Um, my goal is to do the Pacific Crest Trail in six years. I know some people do it one, but I'm going to do it in six years. The Pacific Crest Trail is a trail that starts from Canada, or starts from Mexico and goes to Canada, and it's 2,600 miles. And last year, I completed Washington. And this year, the month of August, I completed Oregon. So I walked all the way, all the way through Oregon, which is uh, 500 miles. And during this hike, I was by myself, um, except 100 miles, I was with my daughter. My daughter came in when I was in the middle, and she hiked 100 miles with me, and then she pulled out, and then I, I, finished, I, finished, I finished the trail. So then you ask the question, well, well did you enjoy it? What, was it? what was it like? Did you think it was good? And all I say is, it's awesome. It is awesome. It is good. But let me give you a little bit of descriptions about hiking. When you hike, I'll tell you it's good. And you know why it's so good? It's because you literally feel hiking. I mean, you feel it in your gut. You feel it in your emotions. You feel it in your body, and probably body more so than anything else. But I will tell you that when you're walking, you're burning all your calories you got. So food is completely important. In fact, you want to eat nutrition, because if you don't eat nutrition, you will feel it during your day, and your day will actually be shorter because you're burning these energies. So you feel it to the core. You also feel it in your feet. I mean, what happens is that the first day is easy. First day is good. You can go 40 miles the first day. Don't go 40 miles the first day because you'll go two the next day. <laughs> That's just kind of how it works. First day is great. The next day, you're starting to feel it in your feet. The next day, the blisters start to grow. And what blisters do is they grow deeper and deeper and deeper. You get one blister, then you get a blister underneath, and you get a blister underneath. And you, you call that? You call it a hole <laughs> in your feet. And it's just a process of hiking. But I will tell you, your feet get bloody. Your feet get blistered. Your feet ache. And the term is you're literally walking on bloody 
stumps <laughs> is what you feel like. But don't worry, there is hope. And the reason why there's hope, because if you go 250 miles to 300 miles, those blisters start turning to calluses, which start turning into stone, which start to turn into strength in your feet, and then you call it hiker's feet. So you go 300 miles, then you can start increasing your miles because your feet has now adjusted. But I will tell you that you literally feel it. I was, um, had a GPS on me the entire time, and uh, so people could track me. And one person that really wanted to track me was, was Barbara Hilton. And she says, hey, I want to track you. Give me the GPS. And she was all over tracking me. And uh, so she knew when I took a break. She knew when I went to bed. She knew when I woke up. And she recorded absolutely everything. And so when I get back, she says to me, says, uh, I'll tell you what you're, uh, I'll give you all the logistics about your hike, you know, in a couple days as I compile them. I'm like, I went on the hike. I know what I did. But she was, I'll give you your logistics. And so she did. And it was like a book of logistics as she sat there and tracked me. And she goes, oh, I got your final miles. And your final miles is 487. I said, no, no, it wasn't. I, I, I walked it and it was 497. It wasn't 500, it was 497. And uh, she goes, no, I, I counted 487. I said, well, did you count when I was off the trail? You know, I walked into different resorts, two miles here, two miles back, one mile here, one mile back, you know, those kind of things. And she says, oh, no, I didn't count that. I said, but but you watch my GPS go off the trail, and you watch my GPS go on the trail. Yeah, I know. You know that I walked it. She says, yeah, I know that you walked it, but I didn't count it. And I said, well, you tell my bloody, broken down, blistered feet. They counted it. I counted every single mile of that. I didn't say that because I was trying to act very Christian-like to her. But you, you really feel it when you hike. Pain makes adventure more intense. It's kind of weird. In fact, pain makes uh, accomplishment more valuable, and pain makes success a little more gratifying. I don't know how to explain that. But you enjoy the pain even in the process. You feel it. You're moved by it. Every morning, I was up at 4 o'clock, ask Barbara, she knows. 4 o'clock in the morning. When I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I wanted to be there well before the sunrise because the sky just starts to turn color. Then the sun starts to come up. Best time in the morning to hike. Also at night, I made sure that I camped in areas that I could see the sunset. I was completely moved by it, and I can't even describe how you're moved by it. Captivated by its beauty. My daughter and I made this comment consistently. Pictures do no justice when you're out there by yourself. And you see the beautiful mountains, you see the beautiful creation, does no justice, justice completely captivated, captivated by it. You're touched by its solitude. There's something about being alone and having nothing else there except your own mind <laughs> and walking. And as you're walking, you have nothing but time. But there's something about the solitude of being by yourself that is rich, that is strong, that is good. That hike also <laughs> made me driven by the challenge, completely driven by the challenge, because when I showed up, at home, I tell you, I slept in my bed for one week. And after the week was over, I started planning my next hike. Completed Washington, completed Oregon. I got California, 1,600 miles. Okay, it's going to take me three years. Break it up in three different sections. But then I thought, you know what? I can do it in two years. If I put two sections together and go 1,100 miles, then I could do the 500 miles the next year. So I told my wife, I said, honey, guess what? I think I can do it in two, uh, two years, but I'll need to be gone for two months. And she says, you're going to be gone for two months? So if you're going to be gone for two months, she says, you need to shoot the cows, sell the dogs, and hire an army to do all the chores that I did to you when I was gone. Then I'll consider if you're going to be gone for two months. So I think I'm going to do it in in three years instead of two. But I will tell you that it does give you motivation when you do it. So just to sum up my hike, 
You feel it, you move by it, you're captivated by it, you're touched by it, you're driven by it. The hike is absolutely awesome. It's good. Here John opens up his book. When he opens up his book, he has something to say. And he has something to say because something hit his heart really, really deep. And how does he speak? He speaks in two different forms. He speaks with emotion, and then he speaks with detail. Look at the passage. What does he do? He says these words. They're in your parentheses. We have heard. We have seen. We have looked. We have touched. We have proclaimed. We have seen. We testify. We proclaim. We proclaim. We've seen. We touch. Sounds like a broken record, doesn't he? Why? Because he's not speaking out of logic. He's speaking from the heart because something has hit him in the heart. He heard, seen, looked, touched, proclaimed, seen, testified, proclaimed, proclaimed, seen, heard. It is making a statement that he is something deep in his heart, moved, consumed, excited, motivated, passionate, energized, and then he completes it right at the end of the verse of saying something completely radical. Because of it, my joy is complete. My joy is complete. Haven't you ever been to marriage counseling? If you have a counselor, he says, never make an absolute statement. You know, don't use the word, my wife always does this. My husband always does this. And the reason why we don't make absolute statements because absolute statements are exaggerations. If you use an absolute statement, you've gone beyond logic and you're exaggerating to inflict pain. That's what, that's what you're doing in, in saying those statements. So you don't use them. You know, my counselor, I pull them out and say, stop using them because your wife doesn't always do this. Um, don't you say every time. What is it? It's an absolute statement. We had an absolute statement that was made last week. I want to say the quote. Joe Biden said, the president is responsible for all COVID deaths. Now, that's an absolute statement. And what happened when he said it? His own party jumped on him. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Don't use absolute statements. And the reason why you don't use absolute statements is because you move into exaggeration. If you say absolute statements. And his own party went after him. The news went after him. They said, okay, you know, everybody for him said, don't do that again. Because absolute statements is exaggeration or it is extremely powerful. Here, John made an absolute statement. My joy is complete. There's something interesting about this absolute statement is it's called the inspired word of God. It is an absolute statement inside of the inspired word of God. Therefore, it is completely true. So what is he saying? He is saying, because this is what the word complete means in the Greek, my cup is full, is what he's saying. I need nothing else to make my joy good. If I lose my dignity, I still have my joy. It's complete. It's not going to be lost. If I lose my health, my joy is, is complete. It's done. If I, lose, if I go to prison, my joy is still full. My joy is still there. If I lose my home, my joy is still there. It doesn't take my joy away. If I lose my life, my joy is complete. It is absolutely complete. So in this, he shares the emotion of the gospel and then makes a radical statement, my joy absolute is complete. Nothing can take it away. Now, what does he mean by, um, by um, joy? Joy is this deep-seated feeling that no matter what takes place in your life, you have the comments go, ah, it's going to be okay. Ah, oh, we're, we're going to get through it. Oh, there's a sense of feeling. There's a sense, you know what? 
the me hasn't been taken away. I can still smile. I can still have life. I can still be excited. I still have a joy no matter what situation you face at all. Christians go to the gospel and they find their joy and derive it from the gospel. And then you have a statement that you can say, my joy is complete by feeding off that gospel. Now, it doesn't mean you're always just going to be happy, 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 happy. It means that your joy will be steady, 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 steady. So let's just look into this word because I will tell you it is a radical statement. And we want to understand two things. The first thing we want to understand is how joy works. And then we want to understand how the gospel gives you joy. How the gospel gives you joy. In fact, how the gospel makes your joy complete. So let's just look at how joy works. Number two, deep-seated joy comes when internal needs are met. An internal need is something that is inside of us that is so deep, that is so rich, is a hole that we have that we are just desperate for. A psychologist named Abraham Maslow, he's an American psychologist, and he's, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer, he's a psychologist. It means that he studies the mind, he studies the person, and he tries to figure out how people function. And as if a good psychologist and a good scientist, when they do their data right and they do the data correctly, what they do is they unfold the Word of God. I mean, that's just that's what happens, because God's the one that created, and they're not discovering anything new. They're just saying, hey, I found something. Well, it's something that's already been created by God, and then all of a a sudden we can even put it together. But these are his words, is that every person has a deep-seated need. They need safety, they need love, they need esteem, and they need self-actualization. So, um, I'm sorry, actualization. So, look at those words. Every person needs security, love, value, and identity. Every person needs that. In fact, we are so hungry for security, love, value and identity, and it is our desperate need. And what I mean by desperate need is that we will live and exist to fill that need. We will live and we will exist to fill that need because what happens is if you get to that need, what's going to take place? Sparks are going to fly of joy. Sparks of joy are going to fly. So what we do is we make decisions, we make choices, we try to get our circumstances under control so we can find security, love, value, and identity. The thing about joy is that you cannot fabricate joy in your mind. You cannot make a decision, I'm going to have joy, and then have joy come. No, it takes something else to come for you to have joy. It takes something else for you to come to have joy. And that something else that comes is going to do what? It's going to tap into your security, your love, your value, and your identity. So as we live for it, let's just look at a chart here. Security is what gives you joy. Is that correct? You hear many times, well, money doesn't give you joy. Well, this is how it works and sometimes how our mind functions. Look at this chart. Money equals security equals joy. Why do we love money? Let me tell you, you don't love money. What you love is you love what money will give you, which is security. You love what money will give you, which is prosperity. So you don't love money. You're trying to get this deep-seated need met. And you believe, sometimes we believe, that money is what meets this deep-seated need. So we are completely convinced money is going to do it. So if I can get it, then I can have security. And then you get tastes of joy through money. But let me tell you, it's not complete, is it? 
Because you, when you lose your money, your joy goes down. When you get your money, it goes up. I and mean, your actually joy travels with the market. It's completely and entirely incomplete. And when you're on your deathbed, you take all your money and you give it to your children and you go empty-handed. It's incomplete. Well, we think that job will give us security equals joy. You know, it's actually, that's not, that's not the way it works. Comfort, because it's not complete. Comfort equals joy uh, equals security gives you joy. See, we are after security. We're not after these items. Because when a deep internal need is met, joy starts to come. We can go through each of these. Relationships. Oh, if I just had a relationship, everything would be good. You're not looking for a relationship. You're looking for a deep-seated love called joy, uh, uh, a deep-seated internal need called love. But relationship equal love equal joy. Cared for equal love equal joy. Belonging equal love equal joy. You're not after relationships. You're not after cared for. You're not after belonging. You're after love. And these things provide them. So when you get them, you get just a taste of it. But you're really going after the word love. You're going after the word value, deep-seated need. If I have success, then I what? I would get value. And then I would get joy. Of course, it's incomplete. If I'm educated, or um, if I have fame, then I'd have value, then I'd get joy. If I have money, I'd have, um, or actually prosperity, I'd have value, I'd give you joy. See, money falls into a lot of things, but it's all incomplete. It's not complete joy. And then identity. We want, a, we want an identity. Beauty. If I should just be beautiful, then I could have an identity that would give me joy. But we never say the word identity. We say, if I could just be beautiful, I could be joy. But you're really searching for an identity is what you're looking for educated position in those things. So let's answer the question, how does the gospel give you joy? How does the gospel give you joy? Number three, the gospel meets every single internal need that you have. It meets every single internal need that you have. What is the gospel before we get into this? I am a dead sinner. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. Jesus rose again, and now I can be made alive because of his gospel that he has given to me if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the gospel is. I am dead. Jesus came to earth. He died. He rose. If I believe, I can then be alive. And do you know what that does? It makes all our bad news turn into good. Our good things turn, can't be lost, and our best things can, um, our best things are yet to come. So it just puts inside of us a salvation that is so rich, so deep, that meets every single thing of security, love, value, and identity. But let's talk about it a little bit further. Number four, let's talk about security, breaking down this gospel. Security. The gospel gives you joy by providing you assurance. The gospel gives you joy by providing you assurance. You know what God wants you to have? He wants you to have joy complete. Therefore, what is he going to do? He's going to give you a gospel in such a way that it will allow your joy to be absolutely complete. If I asked you, are you saved? Many people will go, can say, well, you know, I'm trying. Um, you might actually say, well, I hope I'm saved. You might say, well, I, I think I am, but nobody really knows. If you do not have eternal security that you are saved, can your joy be complete? Your joy can't be complete. But yet, how many believers that love Jesus Christ 
that believed on his name, that believe on his name, still doubt their salvation. Well, God says, I'm going to give you a gospel that will make things clear. Because if you doubt your salvation, I will tell you that you have a screw loose. (laughs) But don't worry. The screw's not loose in your mind. The screw is loose in your gospel. The screw's not loose in your mind. It's loose in your gospel. So let's just be encouraged and let's tighten the screw up a little bit. Every single religion in this world says that you are saved by what? You are saved by your life. Every religion says you are saved by your life. Now, if you are saved by your life, you will not know if you're saved until your life is end, until your life is done. When your life is done, you'll be able to look back and go, okay, I made it. Okay, I didn't. Every religion, every religion out there, you're saved by your life, except Christianity. Christianity says what? It says you are saved by somebody else's life. You are saved by somebody else. Well, whose life? You're saved by Jesus Christ's life. You saved, your perfect slate is not on you. Your perfect slate is because of of what he did. Your merit to salvation does not rest on you. Your merit to salvation rests absolutely on him. So let's say the words again. I don't know if I'm saved is literally a statement that I don't know if Jesus was perfect. I don't know if his death was sufficient. I don't know if his resurrection was powerful. See, what you're doing is you're moving right back into the source and saying, I am saved on my life, and Christians even do it. I am saved on my life because I have to have the gospel and then something else. But God says, I want your joy absolutely complete. So I've written a gospel that you will not be saved on your merit at all. You'll be saved on God's merit completely. So you can walk around with your chin up. Why? Because your chin went so low that says, I'm a no good rotten sinner and there's no way I can go to heaven. But because of what he has done and because what he has completed... I can enter into salvation. 1 John 5, 12 says, He who has a son has life, and he who does not have a son does not have life. What happens is God wants our joy to be complete, and security needs to be met. And the way that security is met to say salvation is not on your merit whatsoever, it is on God's merit And I'll tell you that the last thing that the world needs right now, as it has literally fallen apart, is believers to start doubting their salvation. Ah, come to church. I don't know if I'm saved or not. I wonder if I'm saved. No, they need somebody that says, come to church. I stand on a rock, and the rock's not me. That's what the world needs. It's called joy complete. And that's exactly what the world must have in these times. Number five, love. The gospel gives Joy by giving you intimacy with the infinite. Intimacy. We're starving for intimacy. What does intimacy mean? Intimacy means to be known. means to be known. A heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, body-body connection. I've been married for 24 years, and as I'm married for 24 years, my intimacy with my wife grows. And the way that my intimacy with my wife grows is our hearts get more connected. I know her heart more. I know how she feels. I know what's going on. She knows my heart more. She knows how I feel. She knows how I'm going on. And I will tell you, we get closer and closer and closer as intimacy is taking place. Why? I know her heart. She knows my heart. 
mind. I know her mind. She knows my mind. I know what she likes. I know, she knows what I like. She knows what I don't like. I know what she doesn't like. What happens is that this is growing. We're growing in intimacy because our minds are starting to connect. And then the, the complete display of intimacy is they talk about sexual intimacy. What does that mean? That means body to body. Your body is known. It's a picture of I'm completely known completely known, my body is known, my body is known, and it does carry a power inside of marriage because it is completely known as you disclose yourself. And I will tell you that it makes our cup overflow with joy when we are known and when we are loved. Here we can have intimacy not with only our wives, our husbands, we can have intimacy with God. 1 John 3 says, John speaking in his book again, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The one five seconds that you see God, you'll receive a more education than you've ever received on this earth. Why? Because you will know his mind, you will know his heart, and you will see everything about God. And I will tell you that intimacy will take place to the extreme when you see God. Now that is going to be the awesome rush of intimacy the second that we see God. But we can still have intimacy with God because we have his word. I can open up his word. I can figure out his mind. I can figure out his heart. And as soon as I figure out his mind, as soon as I figure out his heart, it's impossible for me not to have joy. <laughs> I mean, if, if we find out who he is, it's almost impossible for us not to have joy because he wants us to have it so that our whole scripture is displaying it to give it to you. The gospel gives you intimacy with the infinite. You come into a relationship with him, you get to read his word, and you get to know him more and more and more and more. And then the day that we resurrect again, we get to see him face to face where we'll know him complete. A cup overflowing. Number six, value. The gospel gives you joy by placing a value on, on you beyond your comprehension. I put beyond your comprehension because um, the Old Testament, they didn't have a very good perspective on what the value of a soul would be. Because it's a big question that we ask. What is the value of a soul? Meaning, not the value of your body, but the value of you as a person. I mean, how much are you worth? If, if you put a dollar figure on it. Well, the Old Testament couldn't even figure it out on what the value of a soul was worth. And Job makes a statement. He says, man does not know its value. He, just, he, just, he, doesn't, he doesn't even understand it nor has he found it in the land of the living. So he's made a little statement about what is the value of your soul, and Job is making a statement, you don't know what it is. In fact, it is so valuable that it's even beyond the land of the living. So we go, oh my goodness, what's my soul worth? The only thing we know in that passage is that our soul is worth more than we can even understand because it's not even written in what we can see here on this earth. But different statements in the New Testament start opening it up that start giving you the value of your soul. One statement is found in Matthew 16. God puts a value on the soul. He said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's God doing? Here God lays a soul in balance with the whole world and says the scales tip on the soul more than the world. Oh my goodness, I just saw a value of my soul. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth more than a world. Did <laughs> you know that? That your soul, the value of you, is worth more than the world. When you put the world on a scale and you put your soul on a scale, it will tip. 
towards your soul. In other means, God says, I'll have it before I'll have your soul. And we see that through scripture because it took six days and his voice to create the world. That was the effort. But then what did it take for him to redeem a soul? It took the death of his son. Oh my, we just found the value of the soul. We just found the richness of the value of the soul because the way you find value in something is you have to find out how much somebody will pay for it. The way you find value in something is you have to find out how much somebody will pay for it. And all the way through the Old Testament, we don't know how much somebody would pay for it, so we did not know. But when the New Testament opened up and we hear that it's beyond the world and then all of a sudden we hear that it's more than the world and all of a sudden we see the payment that took place, which is what? God made into man, the Son of God dying in our stead. The price is paid. So what is the value of your soul? The value of your soul goes beyond your comprehension, but the price of your soul was Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, dying in your stead, and raising again so your soul can live. First John 4, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The value is there. Number seven, I just want to say the value is there, and this is the value that John is holding on to. Number seven, identity. Let's talk a little bit about identity. The gospel gives you joy by giving you a new identity. Again, we try to do everything we possibly can to find a new identity, and God says, I have the answer. This is your new identity. But first, let's see what an identity means. Identity is, identity is the, uh, this is what the definition is. Identity is who you are, the way you think about yourself, the way you are viewed by the world, and the characteristics that define you. That's what identity is. Here, First John, John is explaining, well, this is my identity. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, my identity, joy complete. That we, that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I have rest in this identity that I'm not even recognized on my own planet because that identity is absolutely so rich. And what is that identity that John just had his cup overflowing with joy is I am a child of God. Number eight, the gospel was designed in such a way as to make your joy complete. Complete security, extreme love, amazing value, an extreme and an awesome identity, astonishing identity. So when John is making a statement in the beginning of his gospel, you do see his emotions, and his emotions are happy as he explains what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has touched, what he has proclaimed. He is just explaining this is good, 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 and it was not an exaggerated statement when he said, my joy is complete because of that because it goes deeper than anything that the world has to offer. So as we are believers, our joy needs to be there. And if our joy is not there, the gospel is the area that we can find our joy. And the reason why is because we live in a world, again, that needs joy. And we look at the focus in the New Testament, or in Galatians, when Paul starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is when you receive the gospel, something's going to come out of you. And what comes out of you when you receive the gospel? Love. What's number two? Joy. Why is it so important? It's because our world needs it. It's because our world needs it. It's because 
You need it. It's because the world will understand that God exists if it is there. Believers use the gospel to drive their joy. And even if the entire world falls apart and falls down and everything moves out from underneath you, I will tell you you have a megaphone in your hand to tell the world that you stand on a rock that is bigger than yours. So if you do not have joy, the gospel is your source. It is your source that is absolutely complete as it gives you security, love, value, and identity. Father, we just thank you that joy is our aim. God, we um, can get discouraged really fast, get discouraged with what takes place in the world, get discouraged with what is on our shoulders. We can even come to church and, and uh, get discouraged, God, as we even hold on to a different gospel thinking that I have to work my way up to salvation. Discouragement can come easy, God, but God, there is not one word in the Bible that is against the Christian. Every word in the Bible, God, is there to make us our joy complete. I just pray, God, that this will, um, the gospel, God, would sink so deep into every person's heart, God, who has received it, that their joy would be complete and proclaim it to the world that is around them. In Christ's name, amen.